Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's edition is about Xi Jinping's China. The recent party convention in Beijing has given Xi a third term as leader of the party and the country. Many now believe that Xi intends to rule for life. My guest is Linda Yu of Oxford University, who's also served as a visiting professor of economics at Beijing University. So what does Xi's ever-expanding power mean for China and the world? The Communist Party Congress in Beijing is always heavy on stiff formality and displays of power and patriotism. This year's Congress opened with the singing of the national anthem. But amidst all the careful staging of the Party Congress, one shocking and unexpected moment stood out. As the television cameras rolled, Hu Jintao, who was Xi's predecessor as leader of the party and the country, was forcibly ushered from the conference hall. The official story was that Hu had suddenly been taken ill, but the very public nature of his removal made this look like a deliberate humiliation and an assertion of Xi's power. Many of the factions within the party associated with Hu, as well as many of China's leading technocrats, have lost their jobs in the political reshuffle at this party congress, and have been replaced by Xi loyalists. In his own two-hour speech to the congress, Xi painted a picture of tough times ahead and a hostile international environment. And he promised to face down what he called gross provocations and foreign interference over Taiwan. When I spoke to Linda Yu, I began by asking her if Xi's leadership is now moving into a new stage. I certainly see it that way. I think he's solidified his uh, control um, over the party. You can see that in terms of uh, who's been appointed to the standing committee of the Politburo. You can see that in terms of, I think, quite a demonstrable removal of his predecessor, Hu Jintao. So I think in many ways, just looking at personnel, looking at the way that Xi's speech has really furthered his views on the economy, on the country, that we said it before, but I think he is now, given that he's in his unprecedented third term as president, the most um, powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong. But what do you think, Gideon? Well, yeah, I think it looks that way. I mean, it's a bit frustrating because, I don't know about you, but ever since the pandemic, it's been very hard to get to China, but viewed from a distance, absolutely. And this third term was always going to be a huge moment because it breaks with the idea that they've got away from personality cults. You know, nobody would rule for more than two terms. And she has managed to break that tradition. But I mean, I thought 
the visual image that will stay with everybody is the image of Hu Jintao, his predecessor, being clearly forcibly removed from the party convention. And I know some people have said, oh, you know, the, the official line is he was ill. And one or two people have, even in the West have said, well, you know, maybe that's true. But to me, the way it was done in front of cameras, she's sort of indifference or even kind of apparent amusement at this spectacle suggests to me it was a very deliberate humiliation of his predecessor. How did you see it? Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting. They did it after the foreign journalists were allowed in the room because that was a sign to the West. Because what I've heard is that that image isn't actually shown within China itself. So this was intended as a message to uh, what's now become known as the global West. I'm now quoting you. I think what's also interesting about this unprecedented third term is that, you know, in China, it's possible to be in power, but not in office. And Deng Xiaoping, for instance, essentially remained influential, you know, well into his 80s, having stepped down formally. So the fact that Xi Jinping has broken with this, you know, decade transition, I think this is really him signaling that he is more powerful than Hu Jintao, than Deng Xiaoping, and he is like Mao Zedong. He will be the leader of China until such time that he decides not to be. And that is a break. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that struck me was that almost as significant as the extension of Xi's period in power, I mean, obviously, that's that's the main headline, is the people who've been removed. Li Keqiang, the prime minister, who could theoretically, he was of an age to keep going, has gone, and he was once seen as a rival centre of power to Xi and also as a more conventional economic reformer. And I know that many of the people who deal with China economically had a great respect for Liu He, who was, you know, the public face of Chinese economic diplomacy. And he too has gone. And I gather a whole raft of other technocrats, the kind of people who sort of spoke the language of globalization, are now out and have been replaced really essentially by Xi loyalists. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I do. And I'd add to that list, Guo Xuqing, who is China's really top regulator. And it looks like the person who's slated to become premier is Li Qiang. And Li Qiang used to be essentially the right-hand man for Xi Jinping. But quite unusually, he wasn't a vice premier. So that's the normal sort of ascension. So you think about Li Keqiang, a PhD economist. He was vice premier. He was one of the architects of the China 2030 report that I had an advisory role on where they worked with the World Bank to try and overcome the middle-income country trap. And then after that, he became premier. So that's a normal sort of path. But Li Qiang is in charge of Shanghai with its strict lockdown over the zero COVID policy. He's not had any sort of national role. So he worked with Xi in Zhejiang province. And Zhejiang province is the most entrepreneurial province just south of Shanghai. So there is an economic experience there in terms of having run one of the most private sector oriented provinces. However, he is not somebody who comes from a rival group as the Keqiang was, was always viewed as a rival by Xi. Instead, Xi Jinping has put in place someone who would be somebody very loyal to him. And that is indeed, I think, one of the things that's going to worry quite a lot of foreign investors, as well as probably domestic businesses, which is trying to work out what this means for economic reforms. Um, Some of the sell-off we've already seen on the back of this suggests that foreign investors are worried. But one thing I will throw in here, Gideon, is that what's interesting under Xi Jinping is that even though 
he has asserted much more state control over the economy in his decade in power. The private sector has grown extremely well as well over the past decade, so that now half of the biggest companies in China are actually private. So as with everything, you know, China's a dozen contradictions before breakfast. So I think we ought to step back a little and and, uh, kind of see that him delivering economic growth continues to be something which is under strain, but a priority because he certainly wouldn't want to be in charge of uh, an economy where people were not becoming better off. I mean, I'm sure that's true. And, you know, he has always said that making China a moderately prosperous country, completing its great rejuvenation with a strong economic component is his goal. But I suppose there are very few leaders who would say, I don't want economic growth. But as you point to the sell-off in the stock markets, that people are concerned, I think, that he may not get it economically, that despite, and I take your corrective about the rise of the private sector, that he has sort of waged war on some of China's most successful companies, most famously Jack Ma and so on, and that now getting rid of the top regulator, the top sort of international economics guy suggests, it reminds me a bit of that notorious phrase that in the British context where Michael Gove said, we've had enough of experts, and whether she either has elevated political priorities or just, you know, isn't somebody who instinctively gets free markets or doesn't really trust the private sector, I guess must be concerns. Mm. I always wonder when people consolidate power, and this is completely outside my area as an economist, but when you become very powerful, you must have this strong sense of self-belief that she must think, you know, he's the one who's developed the moderate prosperity goal. He's the one that's developed the Made in China 2025 plan. He's the one putting forward a common prosperity that he knows how to implement his vision. And Li Chang, who is expected to become premier, would execute it. And that is different than how China has been for the last 40 years, where you do tend to have pretty strong premiers and a lot of decentralized power from Chinese provinces so they could experiment, see what works. And I think it's the centralization of economics under Xi Jinping, which is worrying for um, China going forward, because China traditionally has never actually been top down. I mean, top down in the sense that the government interferes, (laughs) Uh, but a lot of private entrepreneurs would say they succeed because they keep their heads under the radar. And there's always been a lot of scope for decentralized um, decision-making so that China makes mistakes and then corrects them before it becomes calamitous at a national level. So I think this is why you see some of the markets sell off, because centralization of economic decision-making under Xi Jinping is actually a, a pretty important change and one that's a bit worrying. Yeah, and also very striking to make the top official in Shanghai premier, because I mean, I remember during the Shanghai lockdown, a lot of people were saying, well, he was clearly slated for promotion, but this has been so horribly mishandled, that's no longer going to be possible. But obviously, that's not what she thinks. And it seems to me as it also has implications for the increasingly controversial zero COVID policy. I mean, a lot of people, again, were saying, well, once she gets through the party convention, China will open up internally and also open up to the outside world. No hint of that at this convention. Yeah, and I think this is really where you start to wonder if the economy continues to slow. And of course, we've had GDP figures this week, which shows that the economy has actually slowed quite considerably, growing at 3.9% year on year. And this is because 
a large part of the two-month lockdown in Shanghai. That's well below China's 5.5% target. And the World Bank is predicting that China is only going to grow about 3%, as well as other groups like the ADB thinking that China is going to slow considerably below that kind of crucial 5%, which is the rate they need to grow at in order for China to to continue to move up um, in terms of being upper middle income countries. So knowing that lockdowns and zero COVID policies are slowing the economy this much, if this continues beyond the National People's Congress next spring, you do wonder if that's not going to cause the Chinese leadership to back up and say, actually, maybe we do need to look again at the COVID restrictions. And I think a key driver of that decision is going to be China's begun to import vaccines. So that's one of the reasons why they have a zero COVID strategy is because their vaccines don't have the efficacy of Western vaccines. And one in five people aged over the age of 80 are actually unvaccinated in China. So I think over the next six months, if that changes and the economy continues to slow, that's probably when you will see a relaxation of zero COVID strategy. But you're right, there's no sign of it as of now, which is also, I think, quite worrying for a lot of businesses because of the fact that when Shanghai locks down, it means that manufacturing around it locks down because they can't get out their products out of China. There's a huge implications from um, these strict lockdowns that Li Chang <laughs> had implemented and was not very popular for. And as well as the economic impact, what do you think the sort of psychological impact is, you know, both for foreign businessmen who used to go regularly to China, they don't now anymore, and indeed for, you know, many Chinese who used to travel outside the country or students outside the country, the number of Chinese friends I know who say, well, look, I haven't seen my family for two, three years. It's a strange situation. It's almost becoming a sort of hermit kingdom as long as the uh, zero COVID's in place. Well, certainly I hope it doesn't uh, head that way because that clearly is what North Korea is known for. Uh, <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I think it takes a huge toll and I think just quickly, economically, again, it's made China, it went from being the best performing economy during the pandemic lockdown, when the West was in lockdown, to now the worst. And, you know, China adopts zero COVID because of its weak vaccinations. So they don't have the coverage that others do. And I think that is actually a function of not being a more open system. And the impact on businesses, on people, I think that is something that could also cause a rethink of the zero COVID strategy. Because one of the other things about China that's interesting is that in the one sense, we just talked about Xi being all powerful, but they are like politicians in lots of countries. They do a lot of focus groups. They're trying to work out what people are most unhappy about because they ultimately want stability and they want to stay in power. So I think the kind of toll that it takes on Chinese people, I think that probably will play a role which is, again, one of the contradictions about China. So you think, well, it's a one-party state. Why would they care? Well, because <laughs> they want to stay in power. That's why they're trying to deliver a common prosperity. They do focus groups. They do polling. They're trying to address some of the things that make the people most unhappy and could either protest or vote with their feet and leave. And that would be something that they would be concerned about. And even Xi Jinping in his now much more powerful state would be concerned about. Yeah, I mean, obviously, zero COVID is probably the main thing weighing down on growth figures. But the other thing that everybody who focuses on the Chinese economy is talking about at the moment is this long awaited meltdown in the property sector. You know, there's been huge development in property and infrastructure over the last 20 years. A lot of people were always claiming there are problems in that sector, but for a long time, they didn't seem to materialize. But now, 
they really do seem to have with a vengeance. What's going on and how big a problem is it for the Chinese economy? Because again, we always thought, oh, I always thought that, well, yeah, they may have a lot of bad debts, but they're growing so fast, they can kind of grow out of the debts. But if you don't have fast growth anymore, presumably the debt problem becomes more threatening. You're absolutely right. So that is the other major factor that's weighed on um, GDP growth. And this is probably one of the reasons why the figure was due out last Tuesday, but didn't actually get released until Monday of this week after the party congress, because growth is weak. And property, um, at the peak of the disclosures about Evergrande, which is the most indebted property company in the world, the second biggest one in China, the dent to confidence made a huge dent in GDP growth. GDP growth that quarter was about 0.3%. This is the summer of last year. So that already shows you that even aside from the purely sort of technical weight of property in the economy, how much people's wealth is actually tied up in their properties and how much property developers weigh on the economy. So, you know, in terms of what's happening with the property sector, they've set up a rescue fund. That tells you in and of itself that the property sector is probably going to struggle with slowing growth and the weight of debts in the system. Property and related services account for 29% of Chinese national output, which is absolutely huge. And in terms of the balance sheets of Chinese banks, property accounts for about a quarter of their balance sheets. So reports are the Chinese banking regulator is now assessing Chinese banks for systemic risk should the real estate bubble burst. It's probably already burst, um, but the extent to which that could actually lead to a crash is what they're trying to prevent by both the rescue fund, testing the banks and, you know, intervening in, in companies to try and see if they can help them, as it were, weather the drop in property prices. And let's not forget, millions of Chinese are protesting because they're paying mortgages on prepaid units that will never be built. So you have all the ingredients of potentially a property sector dragging down the banks, denting confidence and protesting people. And this is why I think that the Chinese government will try and intervene and rescue the sector. Do you think they have the financial and the intellectual resources to do that? Because the American financial crisis, which then became the global financial crisis, also started with a meltdown in the property sector, people unable to pay their mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. Is this more manageable or is that an analogy that does strike you as interesting? It's an interesting analogy. (laughs) I mean, one of the things about China, one of the many things about China is that you just don't really know the extent of the linkages and liabilities. So we have some inkling of it, the close relationship between the local governments and local state-owned banks with the shadow banking sector that also funds their finances. And they, in turn, are linked to the property sector because they own the land. They co-develop with property companies, China's Three red lines, which is part of Xi Jinping's common prosperity, is actually what's caused the property bubble to deflate because they put in more regulatory requirements to try and control leverage or debt in the sector. So I think all of those ingredients together probably say, well, no crisis is ever like the last one, but it's not quite like the Lehman bus because this is not a system that uses derivatives or uh, there are no broker dealers in that sense. But there's other kinds of linkages which makes it similar. The other country that is probably quite similar would be Japan. When you say Japan, you mean Japan in the 1990s when the whole bubble burst? Yes, that's right. So one of the similarities is the outsized property sector 
But the second similarity is that both countries have mostly domestic debt. One of the reasons why Lehman's led to the global financial crisis was the linkages between the U.S. financial system and the rest of the world. China's creditors are mostly domestic and it doesn't have the complicated linkages of Lehman's, of that shadow banking system that made the U.S. crash so devastating for the world. So, I mean, one lesson from Japan is even if you rescue the sector, given how indebted it is, it could lead to years of economic stagnation. Where the economic impact globally could come in is that Chinese banks lend a great deal to the rest of the world. So of the 185 countries tracked by the Bank for International Settlements, all but 10 have borrowed from Chinese banks. So if China were to have a banking crisis because of the property sector, then it would have a global impact, but via Chinese bank lending to other countries. So, you know, every crisis is different from the one that's come before, but the property sector is absolutely worth watching. And it is an example of how China's attempts to increase equality, which is what common prosperity is supposed to do, Xi Jinping's aim to reduce inequality in housing, education and healthcare, how that led to a clampdown on the property sector And then worries about leverage led to a regulatory clampdown on the property sector. And now they're faced with whether the property sector will just deflate or will it crash. We don't know at this point. But it is an example of how execution of Xi Jinping's policies have been much more clumsy than I think most people would hope for the world's second biggest economy. And, you know, we talked about zero COVID as a problem, the property sector and debt. But then just to add to all their economic issues they're having to deal with, Just really on the eve of the convention, the Americans announced really swinging restrictions on technology exports, particularly semiconductor exports to China. I mean, I think we're all scratching our heads now trying to figure out what the impact of that will be. But what's your initial assessment of what it means for the Chinese industry? I think that certainly has fed into Xi Jinping using self-reliance a lot in his speech because that's led to China redoubling its efforts to try and develop a domestic industry. And also because the Americans have required American citizens, even naturalized ones who, for instance, were born in China but became American citizens, to get clearance from the American government. It's leading to Chinese businesses de-Americanizing their workforce. So this is also disruptive. So therefore, not just on importing, accessing technology, but also human capital, which is so important in this industry. There is something else I think that this raises, which I'm going to put to you, Gideon, which is particularly on semiconductor chips. There's a Taiwanese company, TSMC, which dominates the sector. What do you think the American restrictions on technology exports is going to mean for Taiwan? especially since it has this incredibly valuable position in the global semiconductor industry, producing chips that both America and China wants. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that TSMC must be quite concerned about this. As you say, they're a unique company and being in Taiwan adds to the complications. But, you know, other companies, Samsung and so on, even some American companies, chip makers like Intel and Qualcomm, who do a lot of business with China, are going to be scratching their heads about their futures I think it's potentially incredibly disruptive for the semiconductor industry. But TSMC, as you know, are under pressure from the American government to set up a foundry in the United States, because I think the Americans thinking ahead are thinking, well, you know, if there were a war over Taiwan, 90%, according to Biden, of the world's most advanced chips are made in Taiwan. And as one American official put it to me, there would be a semiconductor nuclear winter 
if TSMC was taken out. But actually getting TSMC to set up an equivalent factory in America sounds like it should be doable, but is actually turns out extremely hard. And there was an excellent piece in Nikkei Asian Review, which is owned actually by the FT, by our ace Taiwanese reporters who just set out the complexity of TSMC's supply chain. They import themselves stuff from Japan, South Korea, China itself, do a lot of business with China. So trying to unscramble that is going to be enormously complicated. But presumably the Americans knew all this and decided nonetheless to go ahead, which tells you that perhaps in a way that's a little analogous to Xi, they are thinking primarily now in security terms rather than economic terms. And they're prepared to take an economic hit and to cause economic disruption because now security is first and foremost in their thinking. And actually, that was sort of how I was thinking of ending our conversation, is that my reading of Xi's speech is that the sort of mood music was quite dark. You know, of course, he said China has a glorious future and all of that. But there was a lot of warnings about the dangers of the international arena, of the enemies of China, of foreigners scheming about Taiwan. Is that how you see it, that she was sort of preparing the country for the idea that at least the global West, to use that phrase that I used, now has China in its sights and that China has to push back? Yes, I think we're now a long way from when China just wanted to have a peaceful rise where their aim was to develop and not catch the attention of, of others. I think Xi Jinping has clearly stated that China must stand up to this um we're going to use the phrase global West now. You've coined it, Gideon. I must stand up to the global West, um, you know, and become more self-sufficient, become more technologically advanced and appealing to a more nationalistic streak on the security side. You know, this kind of final note that we're ending on, which I think is quite worrying for Americans. And I'd love to get your take on it, Gideon, is that American intelligence officers were previously thinking that Taiwan would be a remote possibility, maybe, I don't know, five, six, seven years they need to think about it. And some are worried that Xi Jinping has linked force with Taiwan and reiterated his views around Taiwan. What's your take on a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or some type of naval blockade of Taiwan as something that we ought to be more worried about now? Well, I mean, I was very struck that the head of the American Navy said that he thought that China could invade in the next year, which is the most alarmist and dramatic prediction I've seen. I mean, up until then, people talked about the Davidson window after Admiral Davidson, who had said to Congress, I think, last year that China could invade within the next five years. And, you know, even that was regarded as quite strong and quite controversial. My initial reading is that a lot of kind of the expert community who are quite well plugged in were a bit startled by this statement by the US Navy guy. And there are not many people I've come across who think war is imminent in the next year. And I think the thing is that if you were going to prepare to do that, even more than the Russian invasion on Ukraine, it would be extremely visible because it would be a naval flotilla would have to be assembled. You know, every satellite in the world would pick that up. And why would she do it? I mean, I guess people said, well, why would Putin invade Ukraine before? I mean, the decisions to go to war are never super rational. And it, there is some sense that maybe she believes that this should be his crowning glory, the thing that really gives him a place in the pantheon alongside Mao, completing the reunification of China and all of that. On the other hand, it would be the most enormous risk. I mean, you said he prizes stability. Well, what a roll of the dice to stake everything on invading Taiwan or even blockading Taiwan. So 
I'd like to believe that he won't risk that. But, you know, I think that making predictions that authoritarian leaders won't go to war has not fared very well this year. So um, we have to hope that she maybe has looked at Ukraine and understood the risks. But clearly they are a bit alarmed in Washington. And I'm not sure about Taiwan. I mean, I think, you know, the Taiwanese, much as some of the Ukrainians before the war, don't seem to think that they're poised to be invaded. But as I say, many Ukrainians didn't think that and it happened. Yeah, I've certainly heard 2027 and I've heard 2024. Now that you've just said 2023, now I am worried. But just um, finally, Gideon, could the importance of the semiconductor industry lead she either to deepen links to Taiwan or to think reunification might be something that's quite helpful to me economically. I suppose you might think that, but I don't think it really makes sense because who is to say that TSMC would survive a war? I remember talking to Americans about this in the Biden administration earlier this year, and one of the reasons they were very concerned about a war, other than the fact that it could lead to World War III, unless Ukraine gets there first, is precisely its impact on the global economy because TSMC could be caught up in the fighting or... If China were to occupy Taiwan, there would be swinging Western sanctions on occupied Taiwan, you know, as controlled by China. So TSMC would not get its inputs from all these companies that it currently relies on. It might not be able to export to the United States if it was under Chinese occupation. So that would be its major market gone. And frankly, the impact of that in the global economy for both the United States and China would be pretty catastrophic. You know, everything from the mobile phones that we're about to jump back on when we finish this conversation to missiles, advanced weaponry, aeroplanes, you name it, run on these advanced semiconductors. So, again, why would you want to roll the dice? I mean, it is extraordinary, though, that this one company is so central to the operations of the world economy. And we keep tossing it back to each other. But, okay, last question for you as an economist. (laughs) How, How did that happen, is one of the fascinating questions, I think, of several of these high-tech industries. So, you know, TSMC originally started off importing technology. They were essentially the fabricator for companies like Intel. But then the process became so efficient and they became so good at it. They learned and then they developed and then they became innovative with the support of the Taiwanese government. And Intel ended up having problems. So when you're, I think, at the cutting edge, if you think about the number of tech companies that dominate, in one sense, you would say, how is it with this huge amount of competition? You end up with the FANGs or in China, the BATs, these kind of big tech companies that control so much of some aspect of tech. And I think that is one of the market dynamics that we have seen throughout history. The winners from a lot of competition, even from a competitive industry, can end up very, very dominant. And what I think is worrying now is that these are industries that, especially semiconductors, which are vital to economies and national security. And so the question is really, why haven't these industries been more on the radar of governments to make sure that it is a competitive sector? And obviously the other one is telecoms. You know, Huawei is the dominant player. And then the second and third players like some way behind. So state support in Taiwan, in China, and also actually East Asia throughout its development has really backed these big successful companies that then outcompeted companies from the West. So, you know, that is something that um, 
I think will change going forward. I think there'll be a lot more scrutiny of key sectors. But that is, I think, how we got to where we are. And uh, when Nancy Pelosi, uh, the Speaker of the House, visited Taiwan and they wanted TSMC to set up a foundry in America, the 91-year-old founder of TSMC declined. I mean, <laughs> because of all the reasons that you described. So my other conclusion is entrepreneurs are rather similar all around the world as well. <laughs> That was Linda Yu of Oxford University, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for joining me, and please listen again next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.